Welcome to the Notable Perspectives podcast. I'm your host, Muthu Alagapan, a practicing physician and the chief medical officer for Notable, the leading intelligent automation company for healthcare. Join me as we explore how to make healthcare more accessible, affordable, efficient, and compassionate. In each episode, we dive into a unique aspect of the digital health landscape, featuring interviews with healthcare leaders and other innovators or experts. Our aim is to provide our listeners with thought-provoking content by asking tough questions and highlighting how digital technology has the potential to help reinvent our healthcare system. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by Anish Chopra. Anish Chopra is the president of Care Journey, an open data service that helps providers, payers, and pharmaceutical leaders make smarter decisions in the transition to value-based care. He also served as the first United States Chief Technology Officer under President Obama and is the author of the 2014 book, Innovative State, How New Technologies Can Transform Government. Anish, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So um, I'd like to you know, start from the beginning, uh, like I always like to do. How did you get into healthcare? When did you first get interested in the industry? It was uh, during my uh, college years. I was at Johns Hopkins and was getting involved in student government. And we had a national election. Uh, Bill Clinton was elected president of the United States, and he ran on a campaign of including healthcare reform on the priority list. I was intrigued for the broader sense of what we can do as a country to solve problems. And this particular problem of healthcare at the time when the president outlined it was really uh, an attractive one. I have many members of my family in medical school or in the medical profession, and uh, it so- seemed like and continues to be a thorny public-private partnership challenge, given the unique nature of the, the system. And I was just lucky in that moment, I was involved in student government, and our university president was asked to chair a kind of a Maryland version of what President Clinton was talking about. So they launched a Maryland Healthcare Access and Cost Commission. And I raised my hand, can I be an intern? Can I volunteer? And a good chunk of that was to try to understand what the presidential goals and aspirations were and what tools and leverage do we have in state government uh, to make a difference. And so ever since I've been hooked in every part of my career, thinking through what we can do as a country to make the healthcare system a bit more affordable and a lot more Value oriented. From student government to eventually the U.S. government, uh, it's it's quite the journey. Um, You you spent the early part of your career at the advisory board, uh, working with many people who've since gone on to really transform the industry. Companies like Evelyn Health, HMA, Rock Health, many others with with sort of advisory board alums. What was it like spending your early part of your career in that environment, working with those people? Well, it started at the top. Uh, David Bradley was an inspiring leader, and many of us were just drawn to him uh, to be supportive of whatever he thought would be important for the country. It didn't matter if it was healthcare, education. Uh, he got into the media space. Um, he was a captivating personality and a really thoughtful, uh, essentially instiller of values. And so uh, one of the things that he had done for everyone that worked there was to make sure that we embraced every conversation with a servant's heart, that no matter what we were, who we were, where we were, we wanted the folks we were interacting with to get much more out of the conversation or the interaction than we would. 
And so that philosophy of service, uh, his commitment to you know, uh, true north, uh, objective research, finding the right answer, that was a really captivating approach. And I, I was motivated to maybe advance a particular agenda, how the internet would affect the healthcare sector. That was my uh, passion. And when you know, the year 2000 came around, we were in the middle of the dot-com craze, um, there was an opportunity to kind of begin that dialogue about what is the internet, what will it mean for healthcare, and not only did we write research papers on that topic, we actually seeded a few startups, and a lot of the folks you described were involved in that kind of entrepreneurial part of the advisory board's journey. So uh, great reunions. We meet all the time. We get together wherever we can. It's an amazing group of people. Uh, you happen to have one on the Notable team, and you've got one of the better ones. So uh, it's a great family. Oh, I'm fast forwarding a bit, but but you later went on uh, to be the first and serve as the first CTO uh, under President Barack Obama. What was it like, you know, defining that role as the first person to serve in that capacity? Uh, how did you go about sort of uh, defining what you would work on and what did you ultimately spend time on during those four years? Yeah, it's probably helpful to go back three years. My uh, While I was at the advisory board, uh, I was... Uh, kind of a disciple of another mentor, uh, Senator, now Senator Mark Warner. And he named me to a couple of commissions, including the uh, board of the Medicaid program of Virginia. And then near the end of his term, he launched an electronic health records task force. And he asked stakeholders across healthcare to weigh in on what we could do to modernize the delivery of care. And when his successor was elected, it was his lieutenant governor, uh, Tim Kaine, also now Senator Tim Kaine, uh, I raised my hand and said, I'd love to support the administration. And what Governor Kaine asked of me, which then was an inspiration to where President Obama wanted to go, was that he was pretty confident we had thoughtful technical leadership overseeing IT operations. You know, are we going to do the right things with respect to buying technology, operating technology, evolving towards more security? Uh, and and to protect a, a citizen privacy, we also had an economic development engine that was recruiting companies to Virginia, and technology was an important sector of the economy in Virginia. We happen to have a great deal of technical jobs. Uh, one of the fastest growing sectors of the Virginia economy is the tech uh, sector. But what Governor Kane asked of me was to apply technology, data, and innovation to other priorities that he was campaigning on and wanted to run to advance healthcare reform, education reform. Uh, he worked a lot on transportation issues. And then we had a commitment to the climate or the energy sector. That philosophy is something President Barack Obama ran on when he was a candidate for president. In fact, he was in the lure considering my Governor Tim Kaine to be his vice presidential candidate. In fact, famously, it came down to him and uh, now President Joe Biden. And at the time they were courting each other, the New York Times ran a piece. If you wanted a window on how President Obama would govern, take a look at the Virginia model. And it highlighted a lot of the accolades that really are bipartisan and over many decades. Virginia went from back of the pack to front of the pack in terms of economic uh, performance per capita. And it was built on the premise that we educated more of the workforce and had a pretty uh, hospitable climate for, for uh, uh, job creators. So long story short, 
President Obama said, I want to name a person in a role like what I held in Virginia. I assumed it would go to a Silicon Valley uh, kind of you know, luminary because that was sort of what you'd expect in a Barack Obama administration. And I was just a little peanut, if you will, uh, trying to assist wherever I could on the transition team, writing the job description, thinking about what the first 100 days would look like. And about a, a dozen or maybe 20 of, 20 of us kind of worked on that uh, template. And lo and behold, maybe they were thinking about a Silicon Valley luminary. None of that worked out. I don't know what happened, but I got that phone call uh, early in the spring of 2009. And within a matter of days, uh, the president announced uh, my appointment on YouTube, which was pretty cool. Happened to be on my 10-year college reunion. So I was with my, my, my peeps, and I had the president announcing my appointment. It was kind of fun. And the main objective he raised, not to kind of belabor your question, but to get to the punchline, as it related to healthcare, it was to make sure we were thoughtfully implementing the High Tech Act, not just as an immediate subsidy to the electronic health record systems that were in production, but a bit more on the R&D side as to where we're heading on the role of data and analytics, security and privacy, and obviously the topic that we may get to at some point the role of uh, interoperability through internet-based standards, which is now we would be the describing of the uh, Fire APIs. In addition, to think about ways we could apply technology data and innovation to the care delivery reform aspects of the ACA itself. And so I worked on programs like the Healthcare Innovation Awards uh, out of the Medicare Innovation Center to spark bottom-up change. And the combination of these two things were really the hallmark of my time on on the uh, healthcare side. The big picture items for the president were open up as much government data as possible, encourage the American people to put it to best use, think about ways in which we can uh, develop industry consensus on standards, fund some of the enabling infrastructure like the health IT program, but also broadband, and then obviously use some of the crowdsourcing and uh, participatory tools of the internet to bring more people into the tent to identify areas where we can make the system a little bit better. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, that, that is very helpful. Thanks for going through that. And, and I believe in that role, you spent time in areas outside of healthcare as well, or at least, you know, you know the, the broader sectors you mentioned. When you were looking at, you know, healthcare versus education or climate or, or infrastructure, um, you know, did healthcare as an industry lag behind those in terms of technology adoption at that time? I mean, we yeah. would love to say that you know, healthcare lags other industries. Is that what you noticed uh, in, in that role? Yeah, so uh, that statement holds, but it requires a little bit more of the onion peeling so we can maybe put this in context. Let me begin by saying the federal government's IT budget was $80 billion, okay? a good chunk of that on infrastructure. Oftentimes, the dollar investment in IT hides the productivity uh, unlocking aspects of IT. And so to some degree, it's pretty simple to say, in aggregate, did healthcare spend as a percentage of revenue enough on IT compared to banking and other in industries? And I think at that high level, one would argue it has been an under-invested state. But as it relates to productivity improvement, we saw a few big gaps. And perhaps the biggest of those gaps 
was a market failure. IT supports business requirements as defined by a purchaser. So America, as the largest purchaser of healthcare, is screaming for care coordination, demanding uh, uh, interoperability and analytics to identify pockets of the population that are not getting the care they deserve, to connect them to better care, and to track and learn what works and what didn't to scale best practices. That's the national agenda. Frankly, it's the dollars invested in healthcare collectively agenda. But that's not how economies work. In the United States, the buyer of IT are the individual pieces and parts, individual health plans, individual doctors and hospitals and insurance brokers and all the other stakeholders. And unfortunately, much of the underlying micro incentives of healthcare were the predominant demand signal for IT. So the IT purchased by individual doctors and hospitals might be generating quote-unquote productivity gains, but they're in areas that don't solve the national problem. So national productivity in healthcare goes down, and individual micro-investments like, can I upcode a little bit or accurately code depending on your language? Can I... uh uh, sort of, if audited, do I have the, you know, the sufficient background to make sure that I'm compliant with the visits? Those sorts of micro use cases on technology overwhelm the larger, uh, use cases. And so we felt with the High Tech Act, we needed to counter that economic misalignment. First, by subsidizing the near term deployment. And then if we timed it right with the Affordable Care Act provisions around Medicare Innovation Center, we would have a natural demand signal shifting because we would move the total cost of care agenda from a Washington policy idea to an operational one across doctors and hospitals and accountable, uh, accountable care networks. And so long-winded way of saying, it's not so much the dollar value of IT, it's much more about the application and the demand signal that we felt needed to change. Very helpful. And I want to zoom out a little bit. You mentioned in the earlier part of your career being interested in um, the application of sort of the internet to healthcare. And, you know, we look today in 2022, and it's just amazing how much progress technology has made as a whole. And if you were to sort of grade healthcare in terms of the, the pace of innovation over the last 20, 30 years, you know, the early part of your career to where we are now, how well do you think healthcare has done in terms of you know, the pace of technology innovation and adoption in the industry at large? Yeah, I can cheat on this question because the easy answer is, of course, it's accelerating. Uh, and it's a little bit cheating because the pandemic almost forced the acceleration. So we're sort of commenting on the obvious. But I would say even without that uh, moment in time, that immediate need to, to, to move to digital, we have seen a number of forces come into play. I would have loved them to happen sooner. So to be clear, an impatient soul might say, ah, oh, we're not moving fast enough. But I'm actually quite impressed, not only with the amount of capital that's flooded the system, which as you know, has been considerable, although that's obviously slowed down a bit. But really three things have happened. Number one, and I don't mean to overstate this, but 
can we declare victory on the uh, High Tech Act? We went from very few doctors and hospitals in a digital uh, uh, model, almost universal adoption among hospitals and north of 85, 90% of doctors in less than a decade. That's a sizable digital transformation on a relatively speaking modest, call it $35, $40 billion investment. So in a way, victory on uh, enabling the core infrastructure we're now moving to the interoperability implementation, and I think we're going to talk about that next, which is really, it should have been maybe five years ago, but okay, so plus or minus five years, we're where we need to be now. The Cures Act is going live uh, by the end of this calendar year. So we'll have an internet-based interoperability infrastructure riding uh, a, a more digital uh, collection of health information. So that part it feels pretty accelerating. Value-based care is a little bit of a hype cycle challenge. I wish more of healthcare was delivered through total cost of care models. And we did have a number of digital health innovators prepare to succeed in a total cost of care model, where I think we've been struggling a little bit. And I think the slowdown of the economy is sort of separating the wheat from the chafe. Digital health pioneers that optimized fee for service may be just on the wrong end of that curve as we look to flip more towards value, those who will survive this immediate uh, uh, slowdown or pullback on demand, the ones that I think that will make it through this chasm are going to those that will catch up with the demand signal for value on the other side. So that's an interesting question. A lot of the sort of stories in the headlines about you know inappropriate use of uh, narcotics or other uh, 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 you know, um, uh, medications, uh, for, uh, mental health conditions tied to kind of a fee for service culture. That probably is a sort of a warning sign that that, that part is not going to kind of scale, but the, you know, integrating the digital into the in-person linked to a total cost of care model, lots of tailwind on that strategy. I want to touch on a little bit of that sort of influx of digital health interest in companies. It's been $40 billion in the last year alone invested in the space by capital allocators. Thousands of new companies literally have entered the space. What about the last few years have made digital health such a popular you know, space for folks to be in compared to the, you know, the decade before that? Well, that's a little bit of the story sort of tale of two cities. So there was definitely a fee-for-service access problem where we filled in gaps. And the pandemic, obviously, we filled in national gaps. But even beyond, I mean, look at mental health. Post-pandemic, uh, kind of immediacy of the pandemic, we now have a steady state where mental health is the obvious winner on digital health will be here forever as a core part of the visit uh, mix. Whereas I think in-person uh, uh, clinic visits uh, that move to virtual are kind of moving further back to, to in-person. And so that, that, that has a much lower baseline, still higher than before, but, but not, not at the level that we see in behavioral. So fee-for-service access definitely got a shot in the arm. And you saw that on the employer digital health point solution space, and you began to see it in Medicaid to try to expand access. But really, we haven't quite flipped over 
yet, to my knowledge, with a more integrated approach where the healthcare organization that is accountable for your care has really maximized all the channels to make sure that you can connect and add functionality and features that are missing from the uh, traditional in-person healthcare experience. And obviously a big part of that is coordinating the care, connecting dots about what's missing and what's not happening, proactively reaching people that may not necessarily feel sick enough that they want to come in for another visit. Maybe they have other factors that they can't afford to pick up the medication or what have you. And to have that more outbound experience to close gaps, that also is a muscle that we're just starting to exercise. Those are the areas that I'm I'm more bullish on because we almost need them to be more uh, uh, capable. So I think interoperability as a foundation for digital health 2.0, aligning economic incentives where this is not a, what's my incremental fee-for-service per click revenue stream, but rather how can I be optimally deployed across a larger population? And how can we use non-traditional signals to identify individuals whose, whose health is deteriorating early enough that we can intervene? And that's an area that I'm, I'm really excited about in the here and the now. I want to get to interoperability uh, in a second, but when we think of, um, you know, the next wave of, you know, digital transformation in healthcare, do you think it's going to be led by the, you know, large population of startups and sort of new entrants into the space, or will innovation continue to be led by the large EMRs, Optum, Change, Amazon, sort of the, the, the incumbents and, and big corporations, uh, you know, where do you see that power balance actually uh, ending up? I'm a big believer in innovation pipeline management. So if I took a step back on the American healthcare story, we need to do a lot more care delivery testing. We want to rapidly validate or evaluate, and then we'll want to scale what works. Big picture. Now, who's in the testing business? A lot of the folks that have raised venture capital are obviously in the testing business. So we can almost put 100% in that category. Now, sometimes they serve more incremental use cases because there needs to be some revenue. And so there's always a tension between how ideal can I be in my launch uh, versus how can I kind of build upon what's available uh, in the system today, but maybe uh, expand a feature or two. But I'm not giving up on some of the incumbent players building their own innovation pipeline management cultures. CEO Procter & Gamble famously said in the 90s that I want 50% of all new products and services that Procter & Gamble ships to be sourced from ideas outside of the famous, very famous lab network within P&G. I called that CTO of the Procter & Gamble lab network. And I said, gosh, was this effectively a punch in the gut? Did your boss just say you're only good for half the output? And quite the opposite. He said, Anish, I feel liberated. This is always what I felt we could do, but I didn't have permission or air cover to pursue it. And now that I do, I can more thoughtfully introduce ideas from all over the world, put in place the muscles to evaluate internally uh, what works and what doesn't, or what to put that initial uh, uh, set of bets on, and then I can scale. So you're likely to find all of the above. 
For sure, Optum's got an internally led innovation agenda. Can't deny it. Health systems and health plans may have more of an open innovation approach where they'll let some disruptors in to sort of pilot in their environments. CMS is doing that with the new entrant ACO reach model. And so you've got risk-bearing networks coming to life. And then I think there will be a few folks disrupting completely outside of the traditional systems that may draw uh, more more, uh, consumer-oriented use cases. Someone will crack the code on price transparency. And I am dreaming that there'll be a category of digital health company that we'll call health information fiduciary that is connected to all of my information and running decision support, growing the library of decision support in my best interest. And that could be operated by a startup, maybe one of these open innovation with an incumbent partner or you know inside the box of Optum. And all three should be evaluated and we should celebrate uh, what works. I, I really like that framework of sort of the innovation pipeline management within the compounds of these incumbents, but also in the general landscape. One of the advantages of um, competitive advantages of smaller companies has always been sort of the agility and the ability to partner where they have their own internal gaps. What are your thoughts on, on, on the value of new entrants partnering with one another, sharing services, kind of combining to, to, to reach more collective, whether it's reach or, or audience or impact? Oh, uh, that's a no-brainer. And so, in fact, I'm actively working on these issues wearing my care journey hat, not to mention my uh, general you know, public-private partnership uh, policy advocacy hat. Here's the benefit of this. In an internet-based digital health ecosystem, it's a heck of a lot of easier to stitch together capabilities and render them uh, as almost abstraction layers such that to the end customer, they've got a better experience. I'll, I'll, I'll say the following. The problems are so obvious. It's less about the agility and more about who you choose to serve as your pioneering customers in my opinion. I am a big believer that risk-bearing capitated networks are the demand signal we need to test new products and services. I remember vividly our launch of Startup America in the spring of 2011, right after the midterm elections. President Obama acknowledged that what we largely knew to be true and kind of put some Uh, meat on that bone, that all of the net new jobs created in an economy come from companies that are less than five years old. And so that, you know, big companies shrink uh, and expand, but on net, the growth comes from the new uh, startups. And so with that philosophy, I remember vividly, you know, one of our early listening sessions with a Stanford professor who identified the key in, uh, in, in, uh, what makes a startup successful is the agility to identify future trends as to where we're heading and they can run faster to the future environment, often regulatory, and that they would be more successful by getting there faster than the incumbents. And I will say as another kind of point, I was dismayed early in the High Tech Act uh, when everybody was excited about the $30, $40 billion we were going to spend in, on, on health IT subsidies, 
hey, how do I participate in that program? That sounds like a great TAM. I should pursue that. And I remember, you know, among ourselves, gosh, people, wake up. It's the $3 trillion healthcare TAM that we're trying to influence. This is just like icing on the cake, folks. We got to we got to get to the time when that $3 trillion chassis is run on a more coordinated, proactive, patient-centered foundation. Now, we were saying that as policymakers, obviously, we weren't dictating how money was flowing in the capital markets. But that philosophy is what led me to believe, if you're going to be successful as an entrepreneur, focus on where the puck is heading from a delivery signal. And in my opinion, that remains the capitated primary care networks. And so that group, if I had, if I had limited hours in the day, I'd hug that group for a demand signal, even if they're not letting me the check because they don't have as much resources in the short run, and then use that to build a capability that could be available to the tra- traditional incumbents. I want to transition a bit to talk a little bit about interoperability, of which you know, you're, you're one of the, the foremost experts. To begin with, just break it down for me, you know, very simply, what do we mean by healthcare sort of interoperability and um, what are the challenges so far and and what's the goal? Where where are we heading toward? Yeah. So I think I very early on felt that the term interoperability didn't really mean much. I mean, it fundamentally is about systems being able to communicate with one another. And part of the problem is one can have interoperability, i.e. I can fax my message to you and I'm technically transmitting data to you. But the hard part is what happens on the other end. Uh, Generation one of interoperability was like a doctor or a nurse can see it. And that was sort of interoperability. Oh, it's in the external data tab or what have you. I was much more enamored, back to my statement about the internet, for what Ken Mandel coined, Professor Ken Mandel at Harvard, application substitutability. So interoperability, kind of wonky term, application substitutability, a much more precise aspiration for what the industry needs. And what I mean by that is information is flowing in healthcare in a data model that is open, transmitted in a format that is accessible. And application substitutability would mean that there could be a vibrant competitive marketplace. So when the iPhone or the Android phones uh, allow you to access all the sensors on the phone, any third-party developer could build a weather app that is more accurate, perhaps, than what is natively shipped on the phone. And application substitutability is that I'm allowed to dictate for the device I've paid for which apps get to access which features and functions of the phone. So that had been my philosophy. Now, as to the problem, we faced three problems that all collide. Problem one, there had not been an open data model for healthcare at scale. Every electronic health record system on the market had built their own proprietary data model. And from that core asset, a series of workflows that they would use to compete to win business. Well, when the foundation of the model is proprietary, 
The minute you talk about sharing that data, now you have to have license agreements as to how that data model is structured in order to compute against it. And so problem number one was the lack of an open data model on which we should exchange information. Problem number two, we didn't have a technical approach to sharing the data that fit the internet economy. We relied on interfaces. I have to drill a hole into your system and ditto for my system. And through that, you know, single wire, we can transmit content. Well, I have to maintain that wire. I have to upgrade that wire. I have to pay attention if that wire has been compromised. It, it, it's very uh, bespoke. And so we had a sort of transmission problem. And I kept saying, there's this thing called the internet and we can transmit information on the internet all day and night. We need is a secure method of transmitting medical records, uh, personally identifiable information, PHI, over the internet. And then third, and perhaps more challenging, we have a regulatory headwind. That pipe is always on to the consumer by right. It is contractually limited for privacy reasons for the minimum necessary to perform a function. So I have to monitor the pipe to always only transmit the minimum parts of the pipe to meet the business objective of why I'm sharing. And third, uh, there's a little bit of a problem around uh, how maybe contracted partners can reuse some of these pipes so that instead of having one to rule them all, I might have multiple for each use case. You put all these pieces together and you say, gosh, I am bullish that the era of fire APIs will actually meaningfully put a dent in this problem because it tackles all three. It moves healthcare data to an open data model. And as we record this session today, all of the payer claims data, the emerging social determinants of health data, cancer-specific data, and a minimum data set within electronic health records have all been mapped from proprietary systems to a fire-based approach. We have internet-based uh, application programming interfaces so that when two systems talk to each other, they can actually respond to each other in a more internet-friendly way. And most importantly, thanks to this small $15 million grant we made to Ken Mandel and Zach Kahane at Harvard, we have something called the Smart on Fire Authorization Server, which is a programmable framework to custom develop API keys that meet the governance by use case. I can have the same fire server in my physician's office with many keys a one-time key to do a prior authorization, an always-on key for quality measurement within my accountable care network, a sometimes-on for a subset of the population if I'm enrolling in a clinical protocol like a long COVID study. All of that is now coming to my EHR no later than 1231 of 2022. So hearing that, I, I understand the optimism and sort of I feel bullish but as a provider, as a patient, as a member of a, of a software company in the space, it still feels like there are, a, like it is not easy to access information or develop applications. To, to get to that application substitutability kind of vision you outlined, 
Am I off or are we still a far way away from, from getting there? The reason I was so thrilled for us to have this podcast and depending on how your, your friends and, and colleagues are participating is there is a huge information asymmetry at the moment. In parallel to this public regulated substitutability framework, there are growing proprietary capabilities which are heavily marketed and understood. So the average health system CIO I interact with has not yet trained a single staff person on how to administer the public option. In other words, it quite very well be the case that all of the functionality is literally sitting within the four walls of that uh, health system's governance framework but it's never been dusted off and used. And so you're still relying on the existing infrastructure that requires custom HL7 v2 interfaces and or uh, upgrading to a proprietary version of the public option, which may offer a few more bells and whistles that you're begrudgingly signing up for, but worried about economic competitiveness as you build your features and functions. And so I think really the issue here is a lack of industry knowledge, which by the way, is why ONC, the National Coordinator for Health IT, issued a remarkable blog post in August. And it basically said, doctors, ask your EHR vendor about the Cures Act because they are required by law to certify and provide that functionality to you no later than 1231. And you, by the way, according to Medicare, have to turn it on and use it no later than September of next year or you don't qualify for MIPS, and if you're an advanced alternative payment model, it creates an, a quality uh, headwind. So I think there is a big market education issue, not a technical gap. More organizations are live on this capability today. It was not magically everything turns on 1231. It's no later than. So people have already shipped. Epic famously shipped their functionality in August of 2002. 21, the August of 2021 edition, which the market usually adopts within six months. So I would say the vast majority of the Epic sites are live. They're the only ones who are transparent where they keep a list of all the uh, health systems that are on the right uh, Fire R4 version. And so uh, that at least is public. Whereas I think for the other EHR platforms, they've kept that a little bit harder to find. And uh, CMS is explicitly asking for whether or not we do more regulatory work on making the fire endpoints uh, visible so we can begin uh, demand signaling uh, interoperability use cases. So that's very helpful. And, and I believe part of the Cures Act is also about information blocking. And so I'd love to hear in yes. your mind, what are some of the examples where information blocking is still taking place to a, to a great extent? Uh, where, if anywhere, does that still, does that still happen? So I think information blocking was a very complex regulatory construct in that often the blocking would be really a mixture of whether it was the customer's blocking or the vendor's blocking or some, you know, a mixture of the two. In many ways, information blocking as a regulatory matter was meant to create guardrails. Now, I remember in the early parts of the Obama administration, we cared deeply about net neutrality on the internet. 
And so the FCC issued very clear rules that the few people that have a pipe to my home cannot throttle my Netflix if they're offering me a competitive version of Peacock. And that construct of net neutrality, even though we proposed the rule and it was later withdrawn, has essentially been the default setting for how the internet operates today. You don't see a lot of, uh, well, I happen to be the monopolist who provides the pipe into your home and I'm going to put thumb on the scale and really degrade your experience if I, I don't like the apps you're running. That doesn't happen. So this in many ways was to bring net neutrality business behaviors into the healthcare space. And perhaps the most important thing is if that fire infrastructure is available and you make it, you can allow an app to connect to it because you've agreed to work together. You can't not offer it to another app that may be, uh, has conflict from a financial standpoint with the EHR vendor. So the doctors really have rights. In many ways, this is about a physician's right to interact with their own uh, data. And that was a big part of the rules. Technically, it's called decoupling your fire server from the EHR vendor and business model wise, which is you can't operate in a behavior that miss, uh, that treats the same functionality differently based on the use case. I'm not a big like, oh, shame on everybody for being information blockers. I don't throw shade, uh, you know, willy nilly. I care more that we have guardrails in place, regardless of whether, whether whatever's happened in the past, to say as this new open infrastructure goes online, this is how that should be treated. And we saw that working quite well on the consumer side, which is that no consumer app has been turned down. There's been no evidence of, of that kind of information blocking. But we are now moving to the B2B side where you operate, many organizations operate, and we're going to see some real challenges if the B2B experience differs from the consumer experience with respect to how the type of app you run changes the economic relationship on the public option. It should not. So I, I, I know we're getting close to time, so, so maybe to end, I'd love to hear what is the the best case scenario that you see for interoperability and sort of the healthcare kind of digital landscape in let's call it three years or five years if all of this works as intended and, and goes really well past this twelve thirty one day what is the world going to look like what can we be excited about yeah i hope my mom and dad on medicare that are chronic conditions healthy thank wood touch wood but you know always anxious about that they're going to have a marketplace of competing health information fiduciaries who are saying to my mom and dad, like their broker does for investment advice, would you authorize access to your accounts? I will help to facilitate decision-making. That may be whether you choose a Medicare Advantage plan or not. It may be, should you switch your primary care doctor? It may be, given the acute condition you've got, here are three or four options on where best to go to get care. It may be triaging whether you think this is an urgent care matter. Uh, 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 an ER matter or a physician clinic matter. And so these health information fiduciaries may be sponsored by my plan or employer. They might be sponsored by my primary care doctor in a risk network. They may be completely disruptive new entrants that are sponsored by my financial planner. I don't know or care, but I hope within three to five years, there will be a robust competitive marketplace, not to store my data, 
generation one of interoperability was I can store my medical record on my phone. Good. But I care a lot more for the decision support library that can run against, compute against that data storage to guide me on every step of my care journey. Hence the company I, I help found and run because that is where I think the, if you said to me, where do we save healthcare inflation? We got to get healthcare inflation to GDP plus zero. And if we can do that, we stave off a great deal of Armageddon financially when slash and burn budgets are the only other alternative. And we don't do that unless people are routed to the highest value provider, the highest and most appropriate setting at the right time. And so that storyline, I think, is going to happen on account of health information fiduciary services that may be features or whole cloth businesses that will compete for my mom and dad's support. Well, thank you for, for teaching us, for inspiring us and sharing uh, uh, so much of your wisdom. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. And, and Anish, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for Notable Perspectives. To learn more about today's guest, check out the show notes for this episode. We are always looking for interesting guests. So if you have a suggestion for future episodes, please send us an email at perspectives at notablehealth.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with a colleague or friend. And remember to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Also, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your host, Muthu Gappin, signing off. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.